Yashikoa, Talia, and Asher. What fascinating divretora. You both focused on the same moment in the story, the scouts seeing the Anakites and the Nephilim and then coming back afraid. And Asher, you went down the path, supported by the Midrash and the Torah, that the Anakites and the Nephilim were totally real, that they were actual giants who were evil demigods. And Talia, you went down the path, equally supported by the Midrash and the Torah and the Talmud, that the scouts saw giants because they whipped themselves into a fearful frenzy and believed themselves to be weak and incapable. Our tradition upholds both of these possibilities. Side note, in Judaism, you can have multiple alternative interpretations of Torah simultaneously considered legitimate reads. Either way, whether the cause of their fear was external or internal, what they needed was courage. And Asher, you ascribed Caleb's courage to his trust in Moses and God. And Talia, while you agree that it was Caleb and Joshua's belief in a mission larger than themselves that enabled their courage, you point to another factor, their ability to silence the anxious voices of the crowd around them to look within. This question about how we handle fear, particularly collective fear, continues to ensnare humanity and the Jewish people. We have not yet learned how to do this well. Fear distorts our vision, making it difficult to see clearly how to balance the need for safety with the need to live according to our values. And when there is collective fear, we tend to polarize into two groups with conflicting fears the fear of being victimized, and the fear of being victimizers. If we add into that mix a history of trauma, whether it was 400 years of slavery survived by the Israelites, or whether that's the near annihilation of our own people in the 20th century, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to see and believe in one's own strength, even when it grows to be great. When your family was in bondage, or when your family was murdered with six million others of your people, it becomes very difficult to take responsibility for your own power because you cannot trust that you are ever safe, that you are ever powerful enough. And when there are people who continue to call for your destruction or to question your right to self-determination while championing the self-determination of others, your first imperative is to protect and defend yourself. But if you were once victimized, you may fear more strongly than anyone else the nightmare of waking up and finding that you have become the victimizer. That fear is moral and characterological more than physical. This episode that our Parsha describes was actually meant to be the conquest of the Promised Land. And about that conquest, the Torah commands the Israelites to wipe out the seven nations that are in the land. <clears throat> Thank God none of those nations exist today, so no one can legitimately read the Torah as calling for genocide in our own time. But even in their context, these commands are deeply troubling. You might say, here's a nation that was enslaved for 400 years. Now they finally have a chance to, have, to live in their own land, but they don't have the self-esteem or the skills or the power to defend themselves. And they're so fearful, they see themselves as grasshoppers after all. What kind of match could they be against giants, real or imagined? And therefore, maybe extreme measures are necessary to ensure their safety and survival. Or you could say, as Torah does 36 times, they were slaves. They know what it is like to be the stranger. They know the heart of the stranger, and therefore they must never oppress the stranger. In fact, they must even love the stranger. Flash forward to now. 
when you find yourself, we find ourselves, our people find ourselves with an army and an economy that's stronger than the neighbors. And we've won wars and are now an occupying force. And there continues to be real threat on all sides. Bombings, knife attacks, car ramming, shootings. And the people who most fear being victimized respond with a call to dominate, expand, harden, be merciless, close your eyes to the humanity of the other, be tough and fight for yourself. And the people who most fear becoming victimizers struggle to get the others to see that they've gone too far. So far, so far, that in denying democracy to others, they're threatening their own democracy now. And in denying freedom to others, they're threatening their own freedom now. And in denying safety to others, they're threatening their own safety now. And they're losing the trust of their own people. For American Jews, the point that you make, Talia, about the noise of the crowd is very real. Depending upon one's environment, you might feel the pressure of the collective fear of being victimized, a fear that tells us that to be loyal to our people, to help our people be safe, to protect ourselves from danger, we must never criticize Israel, even when Israel victimizes others, that you must stand with Israel against Palestine. Otherwise, you're not protecting your people from becoming victims. Or we might find ourselves surrounded by a collective fear of being victimizers, that says that if you want to be a good person, if you don't want to oppress others, and particularly the command to not oppress the stranger, you need to be entirely against Israel. You need to say that Israel shouldn't exist, that Zionism equals racism, that Jews have no right to the land, that you are pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. Otherwise, you're a victimizer. But if we can silence the fears swirling around us, as you advise us, Talia, we will see that the choice is not between being a victim and being a victimizer. That is a false binary. There is a space between those choices in which we neither destroy nor are destroyed, in which we recognize that there are two peoples, both of whom have a legitimate claim to the land, both of whom deserve freedom, self-determination, and safety, neither of whom should be victim or victimizer. A space in which we are both pro-Israel and pro-Palestine pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian. It is not easy to get there from here. And the Israeli government has moved in the exact wrong direction. But there is no other humane future. We must recast in this story from the Torah, the story of conquest of the land, and reject the idea that we must either destroy or be destroyed, that we must either eliminate and dominate others or dominate others in order to find our own safety. Rabbi Art Green has a beautiful commentary on this parsha that begins that work that needs to be done. In verse 14:7, it states, they, Joshua and Caleb, said to the whole community of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy out is a very, very good land. Tovah ha'aretz me'od, me'od. Now in Torah, you cannot have a repetition like that, me'od, me'od, very, very, without some kind of explanation. Why repeat that word? Ramban argues that the first me'od, the first very, is there to contradict the other 10 scouts who claim that the land is one that consumes its inhabitants. And that the second me'od, the second very, is there to argue that the land is flowing with milk and honey. Rabbi Art Green takes a different approach. Me'od, me'od, very, very good. It is very good for us, and it is very good for others. It is good enough to sustain both us and those who dwell there already. 
We do not accept the alternatives of us defeating them or them defeating us. A very, very good land is one that can be shared. There will always be Anakites and Nephilim, even if they aren't really evil demigod giants. There will always be real things to fear, both external and internal. We have learned, as a people, how to be strong. We have learned how to protect and defend ourselves. The goal is not to stop being afraid. The goal is to learn how to protect ourselves while allowing others to also be protected. The goal is to be safe while allowing others to also be safe. The goal is to be free while allowing others to also be free. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>